Well, good morning, Sayreville. My name's Colton Willie, as many of you know, and it's my pleasure and honor to be sharing God's word with you this morning. If you have a copy of scripture, I would invite you to find the book of Romans, chapter one. We're gonna be heading there in just a minute. Hopefully you've all recovered from celebrating our nation's independence this week. Hopefully you've had your fair share of grilling and explosions and freedom, right? Uh, now, July's always been a significant month in the Willie household, not only do we love the spectacle of watching fireworks, but July is actually our anniversary month. Thank you. In fact, this coming July 28th, Rachel and I would have been married for five years. Yes, yes, thank you. We're finally at that level where we can dance for two more minutes at weddings during the anniversary dance. Pretty big milestone, I know. But after five years, it's fun to look back, right? Rachel and I recently just found an album of kind of our dating life and our early marriage life. And Rachel and I were actually fortunate enough to enjoy our honeymoon at the beautiful island nation of St. Lucia in the Caribbean. Uh, like many newlyweds, maybe some of you out there, we stayed at an all-inclusive resort. And it was awesome. Beautiful beaches, fresh fruit, that awesome tropical sun. But we always laugh when we think of our time in St. Lucia because it turns out our all-inclusive resort was not actually entirely all-inclusive. You see, normally when you go to an all-inclusive resort, you expect you're going to be able to enjoy all that the resort has to offer. Not the case with our resort. Now, Rachel and I, if you know us, we're pretty big foodies. We love all kinds of food. And Rachel and I ate at pretty much every restaurant at the resort, save one, the fancy Chinese restaurant on the second floor. It was called Silk. Pretty classy. Now, of course, we tried to eat there, but upon stepping up to the hostess, we were made aware that there was a dress code for this restaurant. Ooh. Rachel was fine. Women were able just to wear a simple dress, but men were expected to dine in dress pants at this restaurant. Now, I don't know about you, but being a homegrown Iowa boy, I don't normally pack dress pants to my tropical vacations. So needless to say, we never got in. And to this day, I wonder how good that food must have been. It turns out our all-inclusive resort had one exclusive restaurant. And since I didn't have dress pants, I wasn't getting in. That word, exclusive, we really don't like that word in 2023, do we? When things are exclusive, that means they are by definition excluding something else. For many, exclusivity brings about images of arrogance or insensitivity or inequity. Yet for the Christian saint, exclusivity is one of the most important hallmarks of our faith. I've titled this message, Jesus the only way. Today we're talking about the exclusivity of the gospel. Now for many of you, this seems like a softball pitch right down the middle. Oh, cute, they're giving Colton the easy sermons. How nice of them. And you would be right to think that in some cases. I mean, it's so obvious, it's so clear that Jesus is the only way to heaven as outlined in scripture. And yet churches by the thousands are compromising on this truth. One of the most fundamental and most basic truths of our faith. 
And so today I would like to paint a picture for you asking you four major questions. Here they are. First of all, what does the word say, the Bible, about the exclusivity of the gospel? Number two, what does the world say? It's everything outside of the Christian worldview. Number three, why should we trust the word, the Bible? And finally, what should we do with the word? And so we start this morning with the most important question that anyone ever asks whenever we look at anything theological, what does the word say? We're gonna throw a lot of scripture up there, okay, so you can feel free to follow along on the screens or obviously if you want, follow along in their Bibles as well. We're gonna be starting in Matthew chapter seven, verse 13. Famous passage. This is the Lord Jesus talking. Here's what it goes. Enter through the narrow gate, For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So the Lord Jesus gives us a word picture here. Painting himself as a gate. A kind of door, the only door that leads to life. And so what does the Lord seem to be saying here? He's saying that only an encounter with Jesus through the ministry of his word and through the ministry of his Holy Spirit can a person change from one path, death, to the other path, life. And that's, that's just one passage. Another passage is John chapter 14, verse six. Again, this is the Lord Jesus talking. Jesus said to him, this is another famous passage, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Again, the Lord uses a bit of wordplay, right? He denotes himself not as a gate this time, but as a path. You see the same imagery here as what you saw in Matthew, right? You you must go through Jesus to arrive at the Father and in heaven. You know, it's really cool. It's really funny. The Greek word here for, for, for no one, it means no one. This is not rocket science, okay? We can't work our way around this. And yet again, Acts chapter four, verse 12, this is the apostle Peter speaking concerning Christ. He says, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Again, this this verse drips with exclusivity. There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name. In this case, Peter's being almost like redundant. He's really hitting home the fact Jesus is the only way. And notice what else Peter's saying here. He's not just talking about Christ here. He also discredits everyone else. No other name that has been given. Effectively, he's saying that any other person, religion, or morality that promises salvation and relationship with the Father is insufficient. And just in case three verses weren't enough, we got one more. And we can find that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. This time it's Paul talking. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. 
one mediator, one intercessor, one person through whom we can go to God for salvation, the man Jesus Christ. Now, think about this from a theological perspective, from a biblical uh, exegesis of the text. Look what we have here. We have four passages written by four different authors, Matthew, John, Luke, and Paul, and they all proclaim the same exact glorious truth. Jesus is the only way to heaven. I love Steve Lawson's commentary concerning the exclusivity of the gospel. Here's what he says. We are not just dogmatic about this. We're bulldogmatic. I love that. Why? It's so obvious in scripture. You just can't get around it. And yet churches still capitulate, still compromise, still acquiesce to other parts or other paths, I should say, of salvation. Why? Well, because God said they would. He warned us about this. Check out Paul's letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Paul writes, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And what are those desires? That leads us into our next question. If this is what the word of God says, Jesus is the only way, what does the world say? Important question to, to ask, considering that we're the ones going out in the world, right? So we need to have an answer. Two weeks ago, my brother, Pastor Kurt, rightly pointed out that we're living in a post-truth, or you could call it a post-modern society. A society in which people proclaim, see if you've heard this before, all that matters is my truth. You heard that? Or, no one has a monopoly on truth. Maybe you've heard these before. Such advocates would argue that saying Jesus is the only path to heaven, as the scriptures say, is both arrogant and hateful. Why? Because it excludes people that either don't know about Jesus or they very genuinely hold other beliefs. And so the world's position, if you just want to sum it up, is this. No one actually knows the truth and therefore no one has a monopoly over it. Now, you might be thinking, well, that doesn't sound quite right. You see, there's one glaring problem with that argument that the world gives to us. It is itself an objective truth. If someone comes up to me and says, listen, Colton, you don't have a monopoly over the truth. What did they just do? They just told me a truth. <laughs> they just gave me an objective truth, right? I love Timothy, the late Timothy Keller's thoughts on postmodernism. Here's what he says. It's a longer quote, but it's a good one. Skeptics of Christianity believe that any exclusive claim to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. They believe the world would actually be a better place if everyone just dropped their traditional religious views and accepted theirs. Just this idea, we know we're just going to accept everybody. We're going to be inclusive. Therefore, their view is also an exclusive claim about the nature of spirituality. If all such views are to be discouraged, this one should be too. Do you see what I'm saying? If anyone says that we can't share objective truth, they're trying to put an objective truth on you, right? Saints, listen. We have to start with this. We have to start with this. Listen. 
Never feel bad about sharing the exclusivity of the gospel. Anyone who tells you that doing so is hateful and insensitive is doing the very thing to you which they wish you wouldn't do to other people. To say that no one has a monopoly on truth is a self-defeating argument. And yet the Lord Jesus once said, speaking of his followers, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus did not have any quarrels about saying his word is truth. John 17, 17. So Jesus says the word, the Bible is truth. But then the question should be, why should we trust this truth versus all the other ones? Now, I'm gonna spare you because we would be here all day if we talked about all the reasons why the Bible is authentic and trustworthy. And if you seek, you will find. There are so many reasons why we can trust what this, what this word says about God. But in my mind and in my heart, I would argue with you today that there is one primary reason why Jesus, as outlined in the Bible, is the only way to heaven. And here it is. The gospel of Christ is the only worldview which rightly diagnoses the true disease of humanity, but then treats that disease as if like a doctor. Now that's a bold claim today in 2023. But to illustrate it, what I wanna do is walk us this morning through two arguments against that claim. So we're gonna look at what other arguments say and then compare them to God's word. So I'm gonna ask you to kind of put your theological thinking caps on here. We're gonna dive deep, but I promise it'll, it'll come back in the end here, okay? First, one of the major problems that people have with the exclusivity of the gospel, saying that Jesus is the only path to heaven, is the problem of the unreached. There are millions of people in the world today that have never heard of Jesus, that have never seen a Bible, that have never seen a Christian. And so the argument goes like this. Isn't God unfair to condemn the innocent tribesman who has never heard the name of Christ? That's a common argument. I've, I've talked to people that have said that. Now, many churches today, to get around this problem, the problem of the unreached, they go to something called natural theology. And what it is is in the name. Natural theology is basically the idea that man can know God and possibly even be saved through his, obs his observing of the natural world, his observing of the order of the cosmos, of the beauty of God's creation. And to arrive at this point, other theologians tend to use two major chapters, Romans 1 and Romans 2. So you have a copy of scripture. Why don't we go ahead and go to Romans chapter 1, verse 19. Verse 19. I'm gonna jump right in here. So remember, we're theologians, many churches today are using this to show that some people, if they've never heard of Jesus, they'll be okay. Here's what it says. That which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. And so men, these theologians would argue, can know God apart from Christ 
through his creation by gazing on the order and beauty of it. And they take it a step further with Romans chapter two, verse 14. Here's what it says. For Gentiles, non-Jews, people set apart from God, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So how can the unreached be saved according to some other theologians? By observing God's natural world, but also by just listening to that internal, you know, good versus evil voice, okay? So man apart from Christ has a moral compass and if they, if they don't know Christ, then that would save them. So how is the innocent tribesman in Papua New Guinea to be saved if he never hears about Jesus? If indeed Jesus is the only way? Well, as I said, as many other theologians would argue, God will actually be less judging towards those who have never heard of Christ. The unreached. The unreached, they argue, will only be responsible to believe to the extent of what's been revealed to them. So you're only held accountable for what you know, which in their case is nothing. And so if those innocent tribesmen believe with all their might on this invisible God that they can clearly see in his creation and they can feel in their heart, they will be saved apart from Christ. At least that's what some other churches today would preach. And yet reading the text this way shows a fundamental error in that you're taking text and you're just ripping them out of the context. Some of you Bible, students of the Bible, you noticed I just skipped over some other things in Romans 1 because that's what they do. Let's go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 19. Here's what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Then it talks about kind of like how people can know God through his creation. Going down to the bottom here. For even though they knew God through his creation, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Listen, despite what many churches are preaching today, nature and morality is never enough to save anyone. In fact, nature and morality apart from Christ is only enough to damn someone. Listen, sin doesn't just make us separated from God. It makes us incapable of coming to him on our own. Look at what the text says. Suppress the view of God. They become futile in their speculations. Their mind just can't comprehend it. Their hearts have been darkened. Even though people might be aware of God through creation and morality, they and of themselves can never come to God on their own. They are hardened by sin. God's law is foolishness to them. That's how I was before I met Jesus. So the question was, will God condemn innocent tribesmen who have never heard of Jesus? No, because there are no innocent tribesmen. 
They don't exist. Romans 3 later says, the next chapter, all have sinned and all suppress the truth of God that has been revealed to them. It's a hard pill to swallow, but it's necessary and it's being preached from pulpits in our country. And yet another argument against the exclusivity of the gospel is something that theologians call religious pluralism. So what is that? Basically, the argument goes, every world religion, including Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, they all have pieces of the truth. And as long as you're following one of these religions, they are, they're all highways leading to the same heaven. I'm gonna ask you, student of the Bible, does that make any sense considering the four verses we just read in the beginning? No, the Bible absolutely condemns that thought. The Bible, the Bible can't be just a piece of a truth because the, the Lord says his truth is the ultimate truth. But here's the deal. I think the problem still comes back to man's sin. Why can all the other religions not be a path to heaven? Because of man's sin. I mean, if, if you would entertain me for a little bit, let's just think through Maybe you don't know a whole lot about it, but think through what all the different religions teach about salvation. To the Jew, it's all about them working hard to follow the law, to repent before God, and then they'll be saved. For the Buddhist in the Far East, it's all about following the eightfold path. They're called to, to meditate and to die to self and actually to remove themselves from the world and then they're gonna reach this state called nirvana. For the Hindu, Hinduism, they're gonna store up enough good karma so that it outweighs the bad karma and then they're going to be taken out of reincarnation. And for the Muslim who follows Islam, they're gonna obey the five pillars and as long as their good outweighs their bad, they can never really be 100% sure. They just hope that they've worked hard enough to earn heaven. Do you see a theme? With every other religious thought, every other religion requires that man does something to reach God in heaven. But as the scriptures just said, that's the problem. We can't do anything in order to reach God in heaven. That is the true tragedy of sin and indeed the story of the human race. Listen, I'm a history teacher, okay? That's what I do uh, during my day job. You wanna know the one thing that humans uh, learn from history? No one learns from history. My job is useless. Think about that though. If you, I've studied it. If you look through all, our entire history of our entire race, do we ever do things right? Does anything ever last? Friends, we are incapable of even coming to God on our own. Yet there's good news, the gospel. I love this verse, I love this verse. Romans chapter four, verse five states it clearly. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. 
All other paths to heaven fail to get there in that they don't address the primary problem of man, the disease of humanity, which is sin. They're all part of the broad path in that they put the main activator of salvation on you, on me. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, listen, this is so important. Only in the cross of Christ do you see, yes, a perfectly loving God, but also a perfectly just God. If man could come to God through nature or through some other religion, then God might be loving but he wouldn't be just. You see, sin doesn't just make it impossible for us to reach God. Sin makes us an enemy of God, an enemy of the Almighty One, the Creator who created every atom, every photon, every molecule. In our sin, we are his enemy. God, in his holiness, in his righteous perfection, can't just overlook your sin. He must punish it. Romans 6.23 puts it this way. The wages of sin is death. Guys, if you read from Genesis to Revelation, something must always die to atone for sin. When the ancient Jews did the Passover, they slaughtered the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. That's the only reason that God passed over them. Something must die. And so why is Jesus the exclusive way to salvation? The only way, the narrow way. Because he's the only means through which sin is both punished and erased before a holy God. Man is incapable of coming to God on his own. And so God in Christ came to him, came to you. Such is the indescribable love of God. God sent his son, his only son, to save his enemy. That's why Jesus preaches the message of loving your enemy so much. He's the picture of it. Jesus on the cross died in place of all those who would believe on him. Like a sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament, he took the righteous wrath of God that we deserved for our sins and he died in our place. Jesus was the only person to ever be treated unfairly by sin because he never sinned. And yet, Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose again in victory over death, proving not only that he was God, himself, but also giving to all those who would believe in him the ability through his spirit to live godly lives. The only reason I can live a godly life today is because of God's Holy Spirit within me through the blood of Christ. The Bible puts it this way. My favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did. 
sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the gospel. And it's the only exclusive way through which a sinful man can come to a holy God. So if the gospel is so clearly outlined in scripture, why do so many churches still capitulate, still not preach that it's the only way to heaven? I think the main reason is because many Christians look out across the world and they see millions of people who don't know Jesus. They see millions of people who are following a false religion, hoping in salvation from that religion. And they ask themselves, would my good and loving God allow all these people to be condemned to hell if they never knew Christ? I've asked that question. So our last and final question must be, where do we go from here? What do we do with the millions of people who have never heard of Christ, who are condemned in their sin by a holy God? Well, we, we do what Jesus told us to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This series is titled Theology on Fire. And I know I've thrown a lot of theology at you today. But listen, it's all worthless if it doesn't do anything in your life and extend the kingdom of God. How can the exclusivity of the gospel ignite a theological fire in our hearts? I have a question for you. Does the condemnation of people outside of Christ bother you? Does the condemnation of your coworkers bother you? What about your friends? What about your family? Then go, 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 go tell them about Christ, the Savior. By now, most of you have noticed the map above. I'm a history teacher, so that's what you get. <laughs> it's the spread of Christianity throughout the ages. I love this. And it begs a major question. And this is like one of the biggest questions in history. How does the gospel of Christ, a message found in a small, remote, backwater part of the world, founded by a poor carpenter who led a bunch of poor fishermen, become the world's most followed religion that spans the entire globe? How does that happen? Because the church of Christ throughout the ages has believed what Christ said about himself. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. None, no one comes to the Father but through me. Sailorville Church would not exist if our forefathers didn't go out and share the gospel. The, the fact that you're even sitting in the chair as an American thousands of miles away from Jerusalem, and you know about Jesus, is because someone loved their neighbor well enough to tell them. Do you believe that? You see, to lose the doctrine of the exclusivity of the gospel is to destroy the history, the mission, and the very purpose of the church of Jesus Christ. It just, if you lose the gospel, you don't need the church. 
Two years ago, I was super convicted of this because I know tons of people that, that don't know Christ. And so I made it my mission to get better at sharing the gospel at work. And like I said, I work at a public school. It's a little awkward, right? But nevertheless, through God's grace, I got to know a new teacher at my school. And we had a ton of things in common. He was a nerd. I was a nerd. It's game time. We had dinner at Fong's Pizza. May it rest in peace. And I very awkwardly asked him, do you have any, like, spiritual beliefs? Kind of just wanting to take it back after I said it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I grew up a Catholic. Yeah, I, I believe in God. Oh, cool. So uh, do you, like, you want to, like, do a Bible study sometime? To which he responded, oh, yeah, sure, I'd love that. Didn't hear from him for six months. Needless to say, I thought I blew it, right? But I kept praying. I kept petitioning the Lord to have mercy on him. Six months later from that date, uh, literally on the last day of school, it was like the day before the teachers left, he came out to me and said, hey, Willie, I'm excited for the summer. To which I said, well, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm a teacher. Every teacher's excited for the summer. <laughs> To which he responds, yeah, I'm excited for our Bible study. <laughs> what? I had to like pick my jaw off the floor. I was floored. I had forgotten that I asked him. So we had our study and I laid out the exclusivity of the gospel. I told him about God's love, yes, but I also told him about God's justice. And again, I thought I completely blew it. I thought I was way too straightforward. I thought I was way too hard on him. I thought there's no way that guy's getting saved. So we like awkwardly stood apart from each other in his kitchen. Okay, see you later. And I left. Little did I know that God was still at work. My friend went into his room convicted by his sin, seeing himself as an enemy of God, as someone deserving of hell deserving of punishment. But then he looked at Jesus and he saw Jesus' perfect love and Jesus' perfect sacrifice on his behalf. He got on his knees and he accepted Christ as the savior and Lord of his life. Now, why do I share that? Because it took multiple awkward, uncomfortable steps to share Christ with my friend. And yet now I have the honor and the pleasure of seeing him look like Jesus every time I talk to him of seeing him literally go from death to life before my eyes. Friends, listen, if you're a Christian, someone loved you enough to share Christ with you, even though it was probably uncomfortable and awkward for them. I see John over there. My good friend John Nimmers once said, our problem with evangelism isn't that we don't want to go evangelize. Our problem with evangelism is that we just don't love people enough. Do we love our neighbors enough to share Christ with them? Listen, apart from what the world says, sharing Christ with someone is not arrogant. It's not divisive. It's not, you know, like you trying to force your religion on them. It is the most loving thing you can do for someone. Sharing Christ with others is the single most loving thing you can do for them. So again, does the gospel's exclusivity bother you? Then go. Go tell people about Jesus. Not just people in faraway countries, but people across the street. Tell it to your coworkers, your friends, your family. Go tell them about both the perfect love of God, 
but also the perfect justice of God. We need both. And so in closing, there is still one more perversion of the exclusivity of the gospel. Not that Jesus isn't the only way, but that Jesus himself is not enough. Many of you with us this morning might be thinking, okay, I, I get it. Jesus is the only way. I, I deserve hell. I, I want to go to him, but, but I, I better work really hard to earn my salvation. I need to clean myself up before I go to Jesus. Just recently, the last three weeks, I've been hanging out with a young guy. He's struggling with that very fact. So we've been doing Bible studies together. I've been sharing the exclusivity of the gospel, the justice and the love of God. And I just straight up asked him, I was like, so what, what's the holdup? Like, what, what's stopping you from believing on Christ? To which this young, he's a high schooler, told me, it just seems so hard to be a Christian. I don't think I can do it. I'm too weak. I'm too sinful. I've done too much. Christ might be the way, but I could, I could never come to him. Jesus once said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You see, friends, listen. The path to salvation is exclusive. Christ alone. But the man of salvation, Jesus, is holy, incredibly, beautifully inclusive. He accepts people of all backgrounds, of all nations, of all languages, of all economic statuses. In fact, in our age of inclusivity, I still have yet to meet a man more inclusive than the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. Godly living comes after you accept Christ, not before it. Only Jesus can treat our disease of sin and only after repenting from your sin, turning from them and accepting Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life will you begin to look like him. Is God calling you to himself right now? Last week, this young man, this high schooler, texted me, the first time he's ever texted me in our whole relationship. He said, I just want you to know, I accepted Christ as my savior. Praise God. He listened to Pastor Kurt's message on the fear of God. He saw the justice and the love of God and he saw his need for Christ and he got saved. Would you do the same? Is God calling you? Go to him. Take the narrow path. Christ will not cast you out. He lives to redeem and accept sinners. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we could open your word. And Lord, we thank you, God, that you're not just a loving God, although you are so loving, indescribably loving, but Lord, you're also just. And in your justice, you saw it right not to punish us in our sin, but to punish your son, Jesus. And Lord, you say that whoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. God, I pray that the Christians in this room might go and share that message with the people around them. I pray for those in this room that don't know you, Lord. May they realize that, yes, you are exclusively the way to heaven, but you're also inclusive. Lord, you accept them as, as they are. You're gonna do the rest of the work. 
They just have to trust on you and, re and repent from their sins. So Lord, make Sailorville Church a church that doesn't just say we believe in the exclusivity of the gospel, but help us show that we believe it. Help us go across the street and to the ends of the earth. Thank you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.